Welcome to today's online workshop and podcast presented by realestateinvestment.training and powered by imedialearning.com. My name is Shane Gillespie from iMedia Learning, and I'm the producer for today's event. Realestateinvestment.training, online workshops, podcasts, and in-person continuing education symposiums educate real estate professionals, investors, and wealth managers through the sharing of best practices on the industry's most important topics and trends. During this event, you're welcome to ask questions using the questions feature in your GoToWebinar menu. Ask at any time, but please note we will address them during our Q&A session at the end of the event. Before we start, I'd like to thank our corporate and member association sponsors, Inland Securities, Seattle Funding Group, NAI Puget Sound Properties, Brighton Jones, Taylor Street Capital Partners, the Commercial Brokers Association, CCIM Institute of Washington Chapter, and the Institute of Real Estate Managers for underwriting this event so it can be presented to you free of charge. Joining us today is panel moderator and real estate investment specialist, Derek Doak, CCIM. Joining Derek today are panelists, Gene Trowbridge, Esquire, CCIM and CDEI, co-founding partner at Trowbridge Law Group, LLP, Jeff Johnson, S-I, excuse me, Jeff Johnson, S-I-O-R, C-C-I-M, president of Black Commercial Inc., and Preston Walls, founder and CEO of Walls Property Group. Derek, I'll turn the vent over to you now. Great. Thanks, Shane. I feel like NASCAR with all the little sponsors we have on there. You know, we got to get little patches on the, uh, on the arm for these things. Um, well, as Shane mentioned, uh, today I'm, I'm, uh, I'm flanked by, I think, some of the top minds in syndications. I love talking syndications. Uh, most of you out there who have listened to my podcast or any of my events know that that's pretty much what I do is I syndicate real estate deals because I didn't have my own money to go out and do deals. So built the syndication business. And uh, with me today, Preston Walls. Preston and I have known each other for many years through uh, CCIM events. And uh, you know, Preston's done a great job over in the Seattle market on multifamily and doing syndications. And uh, Jeff Johnson, uh, a counterpart for me in NAI, uh, Puget Sound Properties here in the west side of the mountains. And uh, Jeff and his partners over on the east side of the mountain. So it's always great to have a fellow NAI member on the call with us. And Jeff's book, and he has a, a cash flow book, which I think is a must read for anybody thinking about syndications. So uh, definitely pick that up if you can. And then um, I would, I, I don't mean to say this in a long-term sense, but I would think one of my earliest, earliest, I would say uh, from afar mentors that I worked with in reading all his stuff is uh, uh, Gene Trowbridge. And Gene, a fellow CCIM, taught a lot of syndication classes. And if anyone out there gets a chance to listen to any of his presentations, I mean, definitely do so. It's well worth the attendance. And if you get a chance to uh, go to a site and see all the things he does, um, I refer Gene to anybody who's talking about putting together a syndication from a legal perspective and how to do it um, to go follow, you know, uh, Trowbridge Law Group and uh, see if you can find the information. So with that, I want to have each person introduce yourself, uh, tell the audience a little about who you are and what you do. And then I'm going to go ahead and start with uh, you, Preston, give a little background on yourself and uh, introduce yourself. You bet. Thanks, Derek. And uh, yes, it's uh, it's been it's been fun to uh, to follow follow each other over the years and uh, just uh, see see what you're into and and uh, how you're doing it. And fun to fun to keep in touch over the years from that that first CCM class. 
Um, I, uh, I I focus on Seattle market. Uh, multifamily is my my specialty. I um, do some mixed use stuff, uh, but the the bulk uh, needs to be in in multifamily. It's it's what I uh, know best, and that that's part of my model is controlling as many variables as I can by limiting limiting the variables. Uh, I only focus on Seattle and even specific neighborhoods uh, within Seattle. Uh, I'm I'm uh, kind of north north seattle but south of 85th and uh west of i5 so i I try to keep my my geography uh narrow so i can uh understand it really well uh i I do uh ground up development and and value add rehab deals but uh just looking for uh any way i can turn turn something into something better yeah, well, definitely uh, target target market is uh, what is that? Right after location, location, location on uh, the best way to look for real estate deals. I um, uh, I, I keep it narrow. <laughs> well, you got some great properties. Uh, hats off to be able to to stay focused and not be a uh, shiny bumper chaser like I've done in the past. Um. Jeff, uh, go ahead and introduce yourself. Uh, you know, talk about some of the projects you've done. I know you've been doing syndications for quite a while and uh, have a lot of experience to share. Thanks, Derek. It's great to be on the program. I was very fortunate to get in the real estate business between my sophomore and junior years of college uh, back in Iowa, where I'm from. And I met my first mentor, which was really, Frank was very instrumental. And Frank was a syndicator of single family homes. So that's where I got my start. And then since then, I've had a couple of other very significant mentors. But um, my mentors did syndications so that they could uh, bring friends and family in to invest in real estate. So I started um, and did my first project in 1980. And back in 1980, I started out uh, buying small pieces of land, five to 10 acres that had the potential for industrial development. And then I moved on to uh, office buildings, office warehouse buildings. Over the years, I've done quite a bit of added value land uh, where we could change the use, subdivide, et cetera. Um, Probably the majority of the new development projects we did over the years, I started in 1985 doing office buildings and did lots of office buildings for doctors, dentists, lawyers. And then in the last 10 years have moved into the multifamily niche and I'm now pretty focused on the multifamily niche. And then there's a few interesting properties like that we've picked up over the years, uh, mobile home parks, car wash, um, you know, some odds and ends, but, uh, it's been, a, it's been a great run. Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, you've got uh, you, you've got a great portfolio over in Eastern Washington, and and and, uh, and not to mention just a, a stellar reputation for what you've done um, on the syndication side as well as on the brokerage side for sure. Thank you. Um, and and last but not least, uh, Gene, uh, do you want to give a little background on yourself and uh, in in your history to uh, the syndication uh, marketplace? Sure. Thanks, Derek. It's great to be part of this uh, presentation. Uh, my world has been real estate. I came out of college and uh, 
went into business selling uh, commercial real estate. I learned all about that through my CCIM classes. And uh, somewhere along the line, like many, many syndicators I know, I found a piece of real estate that I wanted to buy, but I didn't have enough money to buy it myself. So I partnered up with a couple people I knew, and that started me on the road of, uh, of syndication. Uh, moved from Minnesota to California quite a few years ago and uh, dropped the brokerage business and went straight into full-time syndication, uh, where I primarily built self-storage facilities. Um, in uh, Orange County, Riverside, and San Bernardino County in, uh, in Southern California. We did 16 of those uh, projects. Mm-hmm. And uh, somewhere along the line, I got kind of burnt out on partners. Caring maintenance of partners can be overwhelming. That's one of my coined phrases. And uh, decided I'd go to law school. And I kind of always had wanted to go to law school, but this was the right time. So about 27 years ago, I went to law school and got my degree and passed the bar. And the only thing I was going to be was a syndication attorney. And that's what I've done, period. That's the only thing. I don't go to court. I don't litigate. I don't do anything. We just we work all over the country. I think I've had uh, clients and or properties in every state in the last 27 years, putting together or helping uh, syndicators like Jeff and Preston put together deals by doing the the paperwork and have a little firm. And uh, we do, uh, for a little firm, I think we do quite a bit of business. Yeah, no, I I mean, I think uh, you've had your hands in all different kinds of syndications for sure. And that was one of the, when our conversation many years ago, I always enjoyed that because of the, some of the clients you've worked on and the different types of asset classes and just the creativity that has gone into some syndications. Um, and, and for today, for today's topic, we're talking about, you know, how to syndicate a deal. So we're going to make the assumption that uh, people listening to this have already figured out their criteria. They found a piece of uh, real estate they want to buy, uh, commercial property or income producing property. And now they're saying, okay, now how do I, I syndicate? And I think the first thing to kind of talk about is the idea of bringing people into a deal. And and I'd love to hear from each of you, and I'll start with you, Preston, on when you look at partners or you look to bring somebody in to partner up with you, what are you looking for? And then how do you go about attracting them into your opportunity? Yeah, uh that's uh that's a really key key part and and uh i think gene really uh hit hit the nail on the head managing managing partners uh can be onerous if you let it so what guardrails can you put up going in to prevent that from happening my the way i approach syndications is is a little bit different than than the traditional model i i go in with no uh planned exit time frame. So my hold period is indefinite and I'm seeking a, a long-term investor mindset to to go into to a building, reposition it, and then own it as a, a cash flowing asset after that. 
the other the other thing is I I limit uh, individual investors to no more than than twenty percent of the equity, and that had started as a a bank requirement, so no individual investor needed to be underwritten and and listed as a guarantor on the the debt. Uh, but a a nice benefit of that is it's it's limited the the influence and involvement of of any investor uh, going in. So setting those those expectations uh, that it's it's going to be a, a hands off and a and a long term um, long term haul. Uh, that's that's really helped me make the managing of of uh, LP members uh, palatable. <laughs> And and when when you talk when you when you're out talking to the potential investors, do you have in your mind like how many you want to manage? I mean, I know for me, I try to keep it you know three to five people as partners. When I started out, I had more than that because I I just wasn't in, in the capacity around the people that could put in bigger dollar amounts. Do you have a do you have anything that like that in your mind when you're out looking? Uh, my my ideal. Uh, deal size has has uh, a bit few more members than that. I, I would say, you know, twelve to fifteen is my is my target size for number of members because that, you know, that's getting them down to to a, a smaller percentage of equity, uh, so that they're not uh, exerting a lot of control over the project, uh, and that's that's another aspect of of my um documents and agreements is you know in in real estate there's there has to be one uh responsible party that's that's the decision maker and if if that gets bogged down with um you know investor input um i've i've run into to challenges there so setting expectations that that individual investors have have very little input over the the operation of the the investment um, limited to to buy sell decisions um, which you know long term investment are <laughs> are very infrequent um, but yeah i i look for uh, a number of number of investors that uh, that that keep the the individual ownership low yeah and and making sure it's not their last uh, hundred thousand dollars or two hundred thousand um, dollars <laughs> when they when they invest because otherwise you do hear from them quite a bit so um, and, and and Jeff I'll ask you that 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 same previous question that I asked uh, Preston which was when you're out looking and and you're looking to do a syndication what are you looking for in partners? And I mean, have you dialed in kind of the, the best, what makes the best partner best uh, investor with you? Well, I've been very, very fortunate uh, to have great partners over the years. I have partners that have been in deals with me now for 35 plus years. So I guess my, um, my thoughts are number one, it's really important to qualify your partners. Of course, pick people who are team players and if you meet with somebody um, and there's that little voice in your head that says, this person is not a team player, there's plenty of money out there if you have a solid deal. 
So I do prepare a very complete package like I'm sure everybody else does. I'm conservative in my um, projections. And, um, um, you know, again, I have um, most of my partners um, every, every time I do a project, I've got some new, I've got a core group and then I've got some new ones, which are usually friends and family. So I just want to make sure that when, if I pick good partners on the front end, that's going to obviously minimize my, uh, challenges over the life of our partnership. And then like Preston, I'm kind of a buy and hold guy and we're in this for the long haul, which is where I believe, or my experience has shown that we get the greatest return in a conservative market like Spokane. So I'm looking for people that we're going to be partners and friends for many years to come. And, um, and that's been, that's worked well. Yeah. Well, I know, and, and Preston hit on it a little bit too, was the, uh, the idea of being upfront about everything. I mean, I, when, when I do a syndication, I mean, I've done, I've done deals where I've told them up front, I'm, I'm going to sell this within three years. Cause I want to fund my, my two daughters college education. You know, this was 10 years <laughs> ago. And, and I want to fund their education. So I'm doing this development with the intention of selling within 36 months and we're all going to be cashed out. And everyone gave me the thumbs up and says, okay. So, um, you know, it's that mindset of, is it a buy and hold? Is it a reposition and flip? Is it, I'm not sure we're going to wait and see, but the more transparency you can have up front, the less you're going to have to worry about somebody coming back and say, you didn't tell me X, um, which makes a, makes a big difference. Um, and, 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 and Gene, I want to take I want to take a little different spin with a question with you because um, I I know that you're a guru around putting together uh, the documents necessary and I do all my stuff in an LLC. Uh, I'm assuming uh, you know Preston and Jeff also form limited partner LLCs for each single entity or single asset entity. Um, maybe you could give a little bit of a spin around the the legal side of it as it relates to bringing on partners and and the documentation. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> well, I just think we should talk. I'd like to talk about how big this business is. Uh, Absolutely. The hit, hit, hey, Gene, it, the floor is yours. You you hit the point. No, 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 no. The SEC uh, every year prints out statistics. When you do an offering like Preston and, and Derek and Jeff do, uh, you fill out a form and you send it to the SEC. It's called a form. D as in dog, and they take that information and they do the uh, analysis. And during the last 12 months that this information came out, the private placement market, which is what we're talking about, where you don't have to go to the SEC and get it approved and go to Wall Street or anything like that. You just go out and raise money from people you know. The private placement market was $1.8 trillion. Wow. Now that's that's uh, five times bigger than the IPOs that were uh, floated during the same period of time on Wall Street. Now, that's not all real estate, not all real estate. Maybe 30% of that is real estate. But out of the $1.8 trillion, I'm hearing a lot of things from Jeff and Preston that, that are true. The average, the median size of the investment as far as equity raised, is two and a half million dollars. Hmm. So half of the deals, half of the deals of the 1.8 trillion are deals where the amount of money raised is less than two and a half. 
and half are larger. And the average number of investors across all those offerings, and I think the I think it was about 68,000 offerings, the average number of investors was 10. Hmm. So we're in a small deal marketplace for the most part. In in our firm, we probably have a little bigger median. Maybe we're maybe we're at four million. Uh, we're a little bigger than uh, than two, and we it's not unusual for our our clients to have twenty investors. And uh, you know, I've done deals one hundred and fifty million. I've done deals for three hundred and sixty thousand dollars. So it's all over the board. But the question that I always that I always wonder now that I'm on this side of it, because when I was raising money myself, I used the broker dealer community and I went to registered reps and I didn't have the luxury that Preston and Jeff had of knowing my investors. The registered reps knew the investors and I had to sell basically to them and then they would put their investors in the deal. So if times ever got tough, I never had the one-on-one relationship with the investors that I had to pull on to help us through tough times. Uh, That was a problem. That was a problem. And given the years that I syndicated, there were some some difficult times. And uh, I think this is a people business. And what I was missing was the relationship with the investors. I had great relationships with the registered reps. Mm-hmm. But not the investors. Uh, and today, my business, my clients are just different. They have the same type of relationship with their investors that Jeff and Preston talk about. And when they go out and find a property, they have a niche on what the property is. Uh, by the time they ink the purchase and sale agreement, they pretty much know who the investors are going to be. And it's just up to me to. Uh, write the documents because the issue here is we're not selling real estate we're selling a piece of an entity and you hear the words like limited partner or member uh, you know that's what we're selling and when you're selling that when investors put in their money into this limited partnership or this LLC and they're doing it to get the profit that a Preston and a Jeff is telling them there might be. Derek is telling investors, you know, the reason we're doing this is there's going to be a profit. But I'm going to make all the decisions, guys. <laughs> Preston makes all the decisions. Jeff makes the decisions. Derek does. That's a security. You've got all these passive investors counting on you to do things right. And the whole securities law is based on two things. Number one, do you give everyone full disclosure? Do you tell them everything they need to know ahead of time so they can make an informed decision? And number two, are you the type of person who should be out there managing other people's money? And that that's just as simple as it is. Now, on, on the Reg D filing, Gene, my understanding is you got to file that in every state where you might potentially have an investor investing in you. Actually, you file the Form D first, the Reg D, the Form D, and then when you go to a state, the state has what's called a state notice requirement, and it's usually send us a check, about 300 bucks, uh, 
tell us uh, either how many or how, how many investors or how much money was raised in our state and send us a copy of the Reg D because uh, they want to know if someone in Washington state doesn't think the offering is going well and they call the securities commissioner in Washington state, Washington state uh, is going to have to figure out, well, who the hell, who did this? Did Preston do this or did Derek do this or Jeff do it? And how would they know if there wasn't some information form uh, filled out? So that's the right D. I was was surprised how many, syndicators I've come across who don't even file the Reg D. And I, and, I, and I was like, you have to file the Reg D because if you have any issues instantly, you're in trouble for not filing that. Well, that's true. That's one of the rules in, in Regulation D. One of the rules is that you file a Form D. Now, there's a lot of rules. And if you just break one rule, does that mean you screwed up your whole offering? Probably not. And probably not that rule. But uh, boy, the states will come down on you fast if, if, a, if a, a resident of Washington calls the Washington securities people and says, hey, I bought a deal and uh, it's called this. And I think Derek Doke is the manager and they, they go and check the records and there's no record of that offering being offered in Washington, then you could have some problems. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely, it definitely adds up. Um, and, and, and when we talk about putting these deals together and, and I'm going to, I'm going to circle back with you, Preston on this one and start off. I know on my deals, I mentioned earlier, I mean, I'm pretty much, if it's a, if it's an easy deal, when I say easy, it's got cash flow, I'm repositioning it. That ends up being like a 70, 30 split. Um, in the cash flow deals, I do offer a preferred return, uh, typically five to six percent preferred because it, it cash flows and it covers it. In a ground up development, I'm usually a 60 40 split and I don't put a preferred on there. Um, what are you seeing in some of the deals that you've looked at or some of the deals that you put together as it relates to what kind of um, fee structure have you set up for your uh, your investors? Yeah, I, you're uh, you're spot on with uh, with what I've been doing. Five percent prep, seventy uh, thirty split, uh, and then changing that a little bit on uh, on a ground up site. I think you're yeah. you're right in line with what I'm seeing. And, and I think it's important to note uh, people who haven't done this indications is all these things we talk about has to be in your offering memorandum and in your legal documents, and talks about. You've got your, you know, your A members and your B members, as Gene mentioned earlier, um, and then you got your investors are primary, and then your secondary on the carry, um, which is the B member side. Um, how, how about you, Jeff? When you, I mean, on your deals, do they fluctuate, or do you pretty much have the same type of template for a return um, that you do from the beginning? Well, being in a small conservative Spokane with uh, returns that aren't quite as dynamic as the larger markets. Um, My mentors here, and then I followed their path, pretty much took a commission and or a small uh, partnership organization fee on existing projects. And then, of course, with new projects, then I take a development. We get a fee for acquisition of the land. We get a development fee. We get leasing fees. So I do not have a investor split on the upside. Of course, we get a commission when we sell. And 
as I've watched the industry change, um, it would be great to change with it. Other than, again, I have partners who I've been doing the same thing, the uh, same format with for 35 years. It's kind of hard to go back and ask for more money. Yeah. Though I also get an asset management fee, which um, my partners a number of years ago said, hey, um, you need an asset management fee. You're taking care of everything. If you uh, get hit by a bus, we're going to have to pay somebody. So I, I get a nice package of compensation that is commensurate with a small conservative market in Spokane. Okay. So, so everything's para passu. So uh, mm-hmm. whoever puts in the money and you get credit for signing on the, the, uh, the loan then? Yes. Um, or how did, how, okay. I, I charge a loan guarantee fee. Um, there varies depending on the project, but I would say usually around 2%. Okay. Yeah. So, so everyone, so whoever puts in the dollars gets the, uh, that, that's the percentage. So if you raise a million dollars, if you put in a hundred thousand, you get 10% of the upside, you get 10% of whatever the cash flow distribution is, whether it's cash flow or, or a sale. Correct. And, and things have evolved okay. here. You know, when I first started um, doing these projects, we'd go to the bank and if four of us went to the bank to borrow a million dollars, we were each going to personally guarantee a million dollars. Then we would then as time passed, we could go to the bank and we could get prorated guarantees. And now I'm fortunate to be in that position where I'm the only one or maybe the builder and I are the only ones guaranteeing the loan. And I don't have to get financial statements and personal guarantees from you know, four to 15 partners. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Cause I, I've noticed that too, that the banks have been a little more open to the partial guarantees. Um, I mean, right after 2008, I mean, 2011, 2012 doing deals, they wanted personal guarantees from everybody. And, uh, and, and now I'm, I'm seeing deals where you're able to do partial, a partial guarantee on the loan versus the, uh, you know, everybody is responsible. So it goes down a chain. <laughs> One person can't yes. pay, goes to the next, goes to the next, goes to the next. Uh, well, Preston nice. talked okay. about the 20%, uh, the 20% limit that's, that's, he mentioned that it's imposed by the banks. I've seen it as low as 15 and I've seen it as high as 25, but, but he's on there. Uh, when we write our documents, we ask the sponsor, the client, uh, to ask their lender what their percentage is going to be up front so we know. And then we just write, rewrite in there. And more often than not, Preston, we write in the 20% because then I don't have to, I don't have to ask the, or have the sponsor ask the investor to sign a bad actor questionnaire. Because yeah, that, I, that I agree. It. That so limit important. is 20%, you know. So we don't care if the people who invest with us are crooks. We don't care. So I'm not going to ask them for that questionnaire. The investors need to know if the sponsor is a crook or not, but the other way around, no one cares, right? Yeah. And then, Derek, I, I, I would add that back in the day, when we didn't have any money um, and we were doing new projects, you know, we would try and finance uh, 85%. And today, as um, both my investors and I are in a different age category, um, we are, we are usually able to get non-recourse financing because we're funding, you know, 30 to 40% equity. So mm-hmm. yeah. a little more conservative game today. That's another reason you yeah. syndicate 
And I often said, if everyone has a 20% down payment and the bank wants 40, you're not going to do the deal without two investors. So you right. can't buy the property by yourself. You can't qualify for the loan by yourself. So let's go out and find some partners. That's good. But, you know, you guys mentioned um, preferred returns and yields and all that. I don't want to go into that, but it sounds like exactly what I type in a lot of documents. But I've seen something in the last year that I uh, hadn't seen before where the preferred return accrues, flat out accrues, and is paid on the uh, on the disposition. The first thing we do is give everyone their money back, and the second thing the sponsor wants is to give everyone their five or six percent preferred return through the whole period, and then we go to the split. And so the sponsor isn't under the gun of uh, dealing with the you know arrearages every year and trying to get caught up because I. I know that I think Derek said that that was trouble. Well, that's that's interesting, especially if you're doing value add stuff where there's no preferred, there's nothing to distribute anyhow. So yeah. I, I kind of like that. We've got we've got a client who is working on their second downtown signature building, office building, bank building conversion to office retail and multifamily. Very interesting. Cleveland, the Rockefeller building in downtown Cleveland. Well, you can imagine that's an old building and named Rockefeller. And uh, I think it's 36 stories and they're doing that. And that was the first time a sponsor came to me and said, well, we're going to give them a preferred return during construction. Wow. When the, uh, when the, Certificate of occupancy is issued, the preferred return stops. Then we're going to go 70, 30, or 80, 20. But that time that we've got their money, we are going to give them a preferred return for just that period of time, but we're not going to deal with it until there's a sale of the property. I don't know if that sells and, them. It sounds like Spokane, Jeff, but. Yeah. <laughs> and that was. Uh... That was, uh, and, and I'm gonna make I'm gonna make you feel really young here, Gene, because back in the 20s, which I know you <laughs> didn't do syndications back then, you know, I mean that's how syndications got started in New York, right? I mean most of Manhattan apartment buildings back then were built through a bond offering through construction companies at six percent, <laughs> is where they got their money to do development and they paid a bond, which I thought was really interesting because that's pretty much the same as you see now, the five to six percent of a preferred return. Um, on the uh, on the development on the development side, but uh, um, yeah, I, I'm. It, it, it's interesting. And that's the thing I find the most interesting talking to various syndicators is this, what kind of deals they structure. So if you're out there, you're buying a property and you're putting a deal together. And I always tell everybody it's kind of different because I don't really have the same structure on every deal. It all depends on how much hairs on it. Um, and is did I did I buy it myself, get it all cleaned up, and then I syndicate it? You know, so it all depends on what phase the project's in um, as, as it relates how I bring bring on somebody from the uh, from the dollar side. Um, you, you, you mentioned development fees and commission fees. I mean, I think if somebody's thinking about doing a syndication, that's kind of how you have to look at where are you going to make your individual money? Because you have to get paid for doing what you're doing. And there's a value there. You're bringing something of value to the table. So, I mean, for me, uh, the commission 
because I'm a licensed broker. So when I do the acquisition, I'll get the commission on the acquisition. If it's a development, as Jeff talked about in Preston as well, as you get a development fee and, uh, and then the asset management fee, I usually combine because I do property management too, is I'll combine the property management and the asset management fee together. And it depends mm-hmm. if it's a single tenant, triple net, that type of thing. Um, but I have, I've never done the loan piece of it. But uh, but to your point, Jeff, I think if I was doing the loan piece and getting a carry, I think that's just going to the trough too much. Oh, I disagree. I think that, that, okay. I think that uh, your signature is worth something. Ask the other people to sign and see what they say. Well, but if and you're actually, on the carry side, Gene, huh? Even if I'm getting the carry, I mean, if I'm taking thirty to forty percent of the profits on the back end, do you think that's still a uh, um, a justifiable? Sure. I think so. Well, like I said, they're getting sixty percent. Ask them to sign. Yeah, Gene. To to your point, I I was in a spot where um, my my liquidity didn't cover the uh, liquidity covenant for for the bank, so I needed a co guarantor. I asked I asked another uh, investor in the deal to be a co guarantor, and uh, his his take was, well, I'm taking all the risk in this deal, so I want fifty percent of the profits. Uh, well, <laughs> is that you, Preston? Yeah, that was me. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just turn it. I don't. I'm not trying to be cynical or sarcastic, but turn it back and ask them to sign for free. And yes, you're getting a carry, but you're doing a, you're doing a lot of stuff. So it all it all uh, this may be too much in without a visual, but gentlemen, if you draw a T-bar. And you put the fees and the shares of cash flow you're going to project you're going to make. And then you discount that at maybe 15 or 25 percent back to today's dollars. You better have a big enough present value for you that makes it worth doing the deal and taking on the risk. Because if it's not a big enough present value, don't do it. Just don't let yeah. someone else get it. And Derek, I don't, I don't really agree with putting the asset management and the property management in the same fee because Jeff brought up the fact, looking at my picture, the sponsor may never, may not be there too long. Okay, we old guys, we may, we may be gone. And I run into that two or three times a year. Something happens with the sponsor. And how do we go forward? There's got to be fees in the deal that are structured that can immediately transfer to the sponsor. And that may not be the property management fee. You may have to go out yeah. and find a new property manager to do it. And then what do you have left to pay the sponsor, the new sponsor? And I've been a replacement sponsor six times and, and getting compensated for that is always a challenge because the deals aren't set up, aren't set up right. So. I, I agree. I, I was I was taking over a deal in that exact scenario. But Gene, I'm on a really good vitamin regimen, so I'm feeling like I'm gonna be around a long time. Well, I'm gonna tell you guys one thing in my business. So this is a secret. I will not take a client who insists that the managing entity is a single person. 
you can find another attorney to draft that because I don't believe that's fair to the investors. Hmm. I've been around long enough to see things happen. I'm not talking about dying. I mean, people go bankrupt, they get divorced, they get sued, they get sick. I know a CCIM that went skiing in Park City and hit his head on a rock and came back a quadriplegic and he had like 15 or 16 deals. Mm-hmm. Who's going to run that? So I won't do it with just one person because the first question, all of you who were investors out there listening, the first question you should ask is, hey, Jeff, Preston, Derek, I'd love to do your deal. I've got the $50,000. I'm just ready to, you tell me how to sign the check. But before I do, what happens if something happens to you? Important you question. Better have that, you better have that answer or your money raising capabilities question. will be reduced. And I don't, I don't think it's fair to the investors to put them in that position. Oh, we'll get someone to do it. Well, no, you won't get someone to do it. Five years from now, how, you know, well, Bob says he's going to do it. Well, Bob may be dead in five years. Banks don't like that. Have either of you guys, any of you run into the springing member requirement yet? No. No, okay. That's no, when no. that's when the bank isn't so crazy about the team that's been put together to be the manager. And so they they ask for someone else to sign the operating agreement as a springing member which says if any of these people disappear and can't do the job, Derek, who signed up front as a springy member, steps in the shoes of everyone and will deal with him. Fanny Freddie, um, Fanny Freddie Apartments, springy members, nasty. But I'm an old curmudgeon, so that's what I think. I think that's a good, uh, that's a good question. What happens if something happens to you? Hey, Jeff, Jeff, you had a comment that I cut you off on. I apologize. No problem. Another way um, we make or I make money as a developer is sometimes I buy the land myself or the my contractor partner and I buy the land personally. And then if it takes time to get it rezoned and positioned and all the entitlements in place, then we provide it to the investors at its appraised value and we let them know in our paperwork, what we paid for it. Um, there's other times we've subdivided land and then put one piece in one deal and another piece in another deal. Um, so we make a little money on the land as well. Good. Good. You know, Derek, this is Gene talking. You you count in your compensation for being a syndicator and syndicating a deal, your commissions. I um, Correct. I'd like you to rethink that sometime because getting the commission isn't really compensation for running the deal. That's a broker activity. You could get a commission and not take the risk of being a syndicator. So I, when I talk to you about putting my T-bar together of what I get and discounting it, present value, I don't put commissions in there. Because I don't think that's that's a syndication fee. That's doing a job. So that's just my advice to you. Yeah, and that would be true if one of us acted as a principal. Yep. Yep. And I, you know, I don't. I just don't. Uh, 
I just don't I just don't see that because I'm all about what's the risk you take of being a syndicator and how are you getting rewarded for that? And if you're getting rewarded primarily through brokerage activities, then you know, take a Mike Lipsy course and become a better broker. Don't don't do this. Yeah, I mean, and and to your point, Gene. I mean, if I I could take that, and Jeff, you're you're probably thinking this too. Is the mindset is you could take that deal to any one of your clients to buy from you. So you're going to make your fee no matter what. Yeah. It's the it's the syndication side of it that you're bringing in partners that wouldn't have access or exposure to that type of opportunity without being a part of what you're doing. That's a great comment. I, I don't mean to hog this conversation, and now I'm going to shut up, but. Derek, what you just said about taking the opportunity to the investors. All, all you guys that are doing this, you have people that know you who would love to do what you're doing and love to invest in your deals. And all you, you don't sell anything, I don't think. I think you present them with the fact that you've identified an opportunity. You've got a team that's ready to seize on that opportunity and you'd love to uh, take them along with you. So, Preston, how tough is that to sell if that's your pitch? That's a good pitch, and it's it certainly worked uh, worked well, especially when there's some familiarity and uh, when when there's trust inherent in that that first circle network that you go out to with that pitch. Absolutely, and yeah. you know, I five hundred six C, which allows you to advertise for investors. That just isn't working. The um, of the uh, 1.8 trillion, okay, uh, 1.4 trillion was raised in 506B, and uh, 600 billion in 506C, and that number is going down every year. We're not that clever that we can advertise and get people to send us 50 or $100,000 checks if they don't know us. Just, yeah, I would say we don't want want partners. We don't want partners who don't know us. Good for you. And we don't want partners that we don't know them. I I agree, Jeff. I'm with you 1000% on that one. Well, that's that's okay. This morning I interviewed a guy from CrowdStreet. Uh, crowdfunding platform and you get your property listed on crowd street and they're going to expose it to 20,000 accredited investors who are going to push a button and send you a check. That's pretty heady. If you're having some trouble raising money, that's pretty exciting. But as Jeff said, now you've got all those people that you don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and Gina, I'm going to keep on you for a minute here um, and ask you about like the reg a, you know, that, that came out, you saw people trying to do a blank check fund in real estate and all these types of raising money to do real estate deals. Are you seeing those be successful or are they kind of just stagnant and a few people have tried it, but haven't been successful at it? Yeah. Regulation A plus would be the one that they're doing where now you could raise up to $75 million. You can advertise. That's the only game in town. If you want to advertise for non-accredited investors, how do you like that, Preston? Let's get people who can send you a $5,000 check that you don't know. Okay. Um, You can advertise for non-accredited investors. And uh, 
that isn't really going to work too much for real estate unless you've got a lot of money and six months of patience to get your your fund up there and running then i guess it would be a blind pool it wouldn't be a wouldn't be a specified property that's that's for sure uh, you guys probably have heard of grant cardone mm-hmm. yeah uh, we yes. did his, we did his um reggae reggae work and that's uh a story for a different time, okay. But why was that important to him? I was with him in Las Vegas two years ago when he stood up in front at the the uh, Monte Carlo and stood up in front of 12,000 people in the gymnasium and pitched his deal right from the stage. And the only wow. way he could do that is because it was Reg A+, because there are a lot of non-accredited investors. We did another one for a group who said they had 90,000 people subscribe to their YouTube channel. And the only way they can market to all those people uh, who are mostly non-accredited, they need to advertise. It's the only game in town. But it's a, it's a, tough, it's a tough game. Very, very tough. Yeah. Gentle, gentlemen, well, I, I, Derek, if I can jump in. Absolutely. Hit it, Jeff. I'm, I've here here's I've got what I now call my 2020 rule, and uh, I'm sure that uh, Gene and Preston have the same experience. But you know, over the years, if I've invested in 10 pieces of property, there's going to be a couple that are home runs and they perform way better than expected. There's going to be six that are just nice, solid producers. And there's going to be two, there's 20% that will outperform and there's going to be 20% that don't perform as planned. And if you don't have friends and, and solid partners who you were in constant communication with, then it can be really challenging when you have those properties that don't perform as planned. That's when you really need all your par partners in your foxhole. And so it's really important to know them and have them know you so that you can um, you have that trust to get through those challenging times with challenging partners. Yeah. Okay. When you're talking, when you're talking, Jeff, I was putting my numbers down. I was writing it and I was going, dang, I'm real close to that, that 20, 20, 20, 60. Because yeah, you do. You do, I, that's a great uh, that's a great way to look at it. Because um, I, I'm I'm a huge believer that it doesn't take a lot. And, and the younger brokers that I talk to about syndicating is I I tell them you don't need to do you know 50 deals a year. You got to find the right asset and the right deal. But you got to get your criteria first and mm -hmm. own that criteria so you know everything about that asset class. And then you look for the opportunity. And if you've got investors alongside of you knowing what you look to invest in. And knowing what expectations could be, they get to know you. You start building relationships and start off small. You don't need to go do a twenty million dollar deal your first deal, you know. Um, and I, and I think I think that goes a long ways of just patience and consistency. That is for sure. All right. Well, I'm gonna. I, I mean, it, it, I'm gonna open it up to you guys. What what kind of what kind of uh, questions? you've got out there or comments statements you know uh i'm a, you know i mean this is, a, this is a great panel discussion around syndication so nothing's uh nothing's off limits 
Well, I would just enter enter into the fray here that uh, right now we've obviously got some unusual times and there is a lot of dollars, as we all know, chasing very little product. So it's really opportune to um, do development and create your own good product. Um, And of course, development right now has the challenges of uh, high construction costs and uh, shortage of labor. So we just we just closed on a very premium 32-unit apartment site on the Spokane River after a year year of uh, some small entitlement hurdles, and we're going to go ahead and get our plans done. Um, we've got our projection together. I raised my equity about 40% equity, and I am going to wait to get a permit um, and start construction until the market turns costs come down and um, we can we can make the economics work really well on the cost side so that's a, uh, the challenge of the day i think or yeah. no i, or I, I you're agree going to sell that lot to someone else who's not going to wait that long and they're just going to move on <laughs> right you always have that's your exit that's an alternative exit strategy that's correct but but you got you got to plan them out too, Gene, because I've got uh, I've got a small piece of a small retail, exact same thing, Jeff. I'm just I'm just going through the motions, kind of slowly, um, and I'm I'm anticipating pushing that out in two years before I actually do it, and uh, and and the same is true on a, a small multifamily site. Um, I'm not in any hurry to break ground right at this point in time. So one of the things I am concerned about is um, what changes in the tax law, if they come through, might hurt the syndication business. And there are two that I've identified. One, if they do something with uh, 1031 to minimize its, uh, its ability to be used. And number two, if they raise capital gain tax. And those are the two, the only two things I'm looking at. And, you know, I'm looking at that from someone who came through 1986 when they, they all of a sudden said, well, if you have losses on your property, you can't take them. That was a quantum change. That was much more complicated, I thought, than, I think, than someone saying, oh, you can't do an exchange anymore. Okay, so you can't do an exchange. But when you couldn't use your losses, you were funding your negative cash flow by your income tax returns. And yeah. you saw what happened to the savings and loan industry. I don't think that that, I don't know, you know, I hear a lot of moaning about 1031s, but I don't know. And, and we syndicators, we don't use 1031s that much anyhow. Uh, capital gain yeah. might be an issue. I don't know. It's another reason to yeah. uh, hold on to your properties long term. Yeah. Yeah, I'm more interested if they do away with, if they come back and reinstitute estate taxes, that's something that might be problematic for all of us. Well, on the 1031 issue, Gene, I do do a fair amount of advisement on Delaware Statutory Trust, on DSTs. So if that 1031 market does go away in that capacity, that's going to, that market's gone. So you, you yeah. wouldn't have the ability to, to then trade into a DST. Um, yeah. And uh, that that's a, 
so I think I think it would have a big impact on the commercial side of things of people who have been trading into institutional grade 1031 assets through a DST and stepping away from the management and everything else and getting their returns versus trying to trade into another commercial property uh, that they control. Well, the biggest problem with exchanges is all of us who have done exchanges over the year, we go from a smaller property to a bigger property, refinance, pull some cash, go to a bigger property, refinance, and pull some cash. And by the time we're through, we've got a highly leveraged big property and 30 years of cost recovery recapture. Right. So when when they say, I can't afford to sell, they, they're telling the truth, but they don't realize how much cash they pulled out. But that, that doesn't solve the problem. So I don't know. Does anyone else have any feeling about uh, whether any tax changes are going to impact what what you do, Preston, or Jeff, what you do? Well, uh, obviously, uh, tax changes um, are temporary to some degree. And, you know, we're kind of resilient. We try and figure out how to work around them. But uh, it could be that people are going to move into more of a buy and hold mode here as we go forward. I I, I try to, to tune it out. I mean, uh, you know, this uh, the 1031 exemption, the carried interest uh, routinely comes up as an option on the chopping block. and. It has always been negotiated away, so I, I, uh, I don't get too too worked up about it at this point. While it's just a a conceptual thing that's that's part of political negotiations, mm-hmm. uh, and I I wouldn't wouldn't plan on uh, changing any investment strategy until there's something more concrete. Yeah, I used to be the chairman of the. Uh... CI-103, the tax course at the Institute, and I took the same approach you did, Preston. We're not going to rewrite the course. We're not going to change the examples until the goddamn thing is signed. You know, let's not, uh, there are too many rumors out there. So I think that's uh, that's true. Anyhow. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I've always, you know, do things in the syndication law of the SEC uh, insignificant. It, insignificant except for one thing that people are waiting for a finders uh, a rule that will let finders uh, help you find investments i'm with you preston on a different format that's never going to pass because the broker dealer community doesn't want that to pass and as it's written it's only for accredited investors and there's not much a finder can do and in fact they can't even get paid so it's much to do about nothing. That was put forward in October of 2020 with a 30-day comment period, and I haven't heard a word about it since. Yeah, it's hard not to, you know, it's it's easy to get pulled into the weeds on all the things that go on, especially when there's administration change, because taxes are always the big area. And uh I think I'm going to, I'm going to, I turn my time and attention to uh, finding new deals. If I got to pay tax, I got to pay tax, but at least I'm paying it on earnings. <laughs> yeah. And, and Jeff knows he watches teams every single year win 30, 31, 32 games, but not the big one. It isn't over until it's over, right? That's correct. 
if if you happen to be a <laughs> basketball fan, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I we're, we're rounding out our hour here, but I want to give everyone a chance to let people know how they can uh, find out more information about you or connect with you. Um, and uh, Jeff, I know you've got your book that's out there. Uh, if someone wants to know more about uh, what you do and what you're doing, how can someone get a hold of you? Uh, thank you. Thanks, Derek. This has been fun. Um, you can reach out to me at uh, my email, jjohnson at naiblack.com here in Spokane, or you can find me on our website, naiblack, and you can find my book, Cash Flow Forever, on Amazon. And we have an audio version on Audible. So thank you very much for having me today. You bet. And uh, I recommend uh, his book to everybody, uh, just like uh, uh, Gene's book as well. Gene, how about yourself? How can people uh, reach out to you and find out more information? Just go to the website, trowbridgelawgroup.com. And that'll take you into everything we do and, and let you have a consultation with me. That That's good enough. That's the way to reach me. Yeah, and there's, there's tons of resources on there. And anybody who's, take, who's taken my artist syndication class uh, knows Gene's book because I use Gene's book in there quite a bit as uh, where to go find the information around the science of syndications uh, versus the art of the syndication. Um, and Preston, how about you? How can uh, somebody reach out to you? Uh, I was, uh, I'm, I'm downloading Jeff's book right now. This is, uh, this is exciting. Wow. I just, uh, teed up, teed up my next listen. Um, I, uh, my, my website is, uh, walls property group, re.com or, uh, my property management site walls property management.com. Um, either way has my contact info on there and, and uh, yeah, great way to reach me. Perfect. Well, I want to thank all you guys. I'm going to turn this back over to Shane so he can wrap us up. But uh, thanks a lot for participating. Thanks, yeah. Derek. I'd like to thank all of our audience members today. Uh, I want to let you know that you can register for additional events like this, upcoming events. You can access past events, presentation archives. We have a fairly large archive online at www.realestateinvestment.training. And uh, if you need to get a hold of Derek, you can reach out to him through that site as well. On behalf of Derek, Gene, Jeff, Preston, Inland Securities, Seattle Funding Group, NAI Puget Sound Properties, Brighton Jones, Taylor Street Capital Partners, Commercial Brokers Association, CCIM Institute Washington Chapter, and the Institute of Real Estate Managers, we thank you all for your participation today, and we look forward to seeing you at your next event. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Thanks.